the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Rick Lee, and as usual, joined by my co-hosts, Lee Johnson and Jason Reed. And today we are talking about growing older. (laughs) (laughs) But before we do that, as usual, we're going to get everyone some drinks and hear what you're ranting and or raving about. I'll go first. I'll just have a Amaretto Sour today. And I've been stuck in the snow for more than a week now. So I'm going to rave about Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke probably has one of the most beautiful voices in history, and he's kept me company in this wintry season eight Game of Thrones landscape that I'm living in. So thank you, Sam Cooke. Actually, I have an amaretto sour, too. That sounds good. And I am going to rave about The Tusks of Extinction by Ray Naylor. I've raved about his previous novel, The Mountain Under the Sea, and I read The Tusk of Extinction pretty much in one sitting. It's very short. It's more of a novella than a novel. Premise is what happens when people decide to bring woolly mammoths back by genetic engineering, and it has really interesting stuff about animal consciousness, about extinction, and about our responsibility to other species. It's just an amazing novel, but also has all those great ideas with some action-packed scenes of poachers getting what they deserve. Nice. So, a lot of fun. (laughs) Well, I'm going to have a stout. I'll take a Maplewood Brewery Fat Pug stout. (laughs) Maplewood is a local brewery here in Chicago. Call us. I'm going to join the raves, and I am raving about the television series Columbo. So I can't believe I haven't raved about this before, but Columbo (laughs) is one of my favorite TV series of all times. And I've recently discovered that the creators were philosophically educated. They were really interested in Nietzsche's depiction of Socrates and may have brought some of those elements into the character Columbo. Hmm. So not only is it a wonderful series, but it is also philosophically relevant. (laughs) So, Lee, I know we're talking about growing older, but what did you have in mind? Well, last year I had the really good fortune to see with my friend and friend of the podcast, Emma Bianchi, the Tony Award winning musical Kimberly Akimbo in New York. It tells the story of a teenage girl who suffers from a rare condition that causes her body to age four times faster than others. So the 16-year-old character, Kimberly, is actually played on Broadway by Victoria Clark, who's an actress in her mid-60s. Kimberly is in high school at the opening of the production, and the plot of Kimberly Akimbo follows a pretty well-worn Billings-Ramon structure repeated in every teenage coming-of-age movie and intimately familiar to American audiences. What makes this story compelling is that because of Kimberly's rare condition, she experiences the ravages of physical aging far in advance of the psychological and emotional maturity that might equip her to deal with those changes. I think the lesson of the show is that it seems as if when we're young, the solution to all our problems is just growing older. 
you know, when will people take me seriously? When will I understand my own body? When will I gain the confidence to assert my own will or just be myself? (laughs) But as we age, it paradoxically occurs to us that the only solution to many of our problems is to be young again. If I only knew then what I know now, if I only had the chance to do that one thing over, if only I could move like I could when I was 20, if only I had my whole future ahead of me. Now, since I've recently turned 50, which I used to think of as old, but I don't anymore, (laughs) I've thought a lot about what aging has done to me, for me, and in spite of me. And as my parents and my friends have aged, I've thought a lot more about the responsibilities that people my age are assuming, the tough decisions that we are making or will soon have to make. The median age of the United States population is older than it has ever been before. And most people in the U.S. today die in what I think are miserable, immoral circumstances. Americans have effectively zero legal rights to determine the conditions of their deaths. So I want to talk about growing older, because as Stevie Nicks said, time makes you bolder, even children get older, and I'm getting older too. Oh, mirror in the sky, what is love? Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle the seasons of my As you both probably know, Plato once said that old age has a great sense of calm and freedom. When the passions relax their hold, then we are freed from the grasp of not one mad master, but of many. But can we also recognize that there is a tremendous amount of anxiety that comes along with growing older? I remember in The Republic, which I think you were citing, Socrates talks about when he talks to older people, he treats them as someone who's traveling to a country he's going to go to as well. (laughs) And I think that's an interesting sort of analogy because we don't quite know what's in stake for us. And we keep seeing multiple different models of it. We see people who seem to settle into it with calm. We see people who seem to continue youthful activities, youthful energy far into their years. And we don't quite know how aging is going to affect us. And so we're uncertain. It's like we're constantly getting trip recommendations, but we don't know where we're staying (laughs) or where we're going. (laughs) So we might have the disastrous trip that we've read all the bad reviews about, or we might have the amazing trip that we've seen all the good reviews about. And every day we're just kind of asking ourselves, wait, is this the bad version or is this the good version of this? It's like Priceline, where you know you're getting a hotel in downtown Toronto, but you have no idea which one. So- If I'm not mistaken, I think I'm the oldest among the three of us. Not by much, though. No, but I don't have anxiety right now about growing old or being old or anything like that. I do look at, you know, my parents and other relatives around me, and I see that they're aging in different ways. I mean, my mom is 87 years old, and she gets more and more forgetful, but otherwise she's in fantastic shape. And others, you know, their body starts wearing out. They don't move around so well and lose a little bit of interest in traveling and things like that. 
And if I could age like my mom, I would have no anxiety. But you just don't know, as Jason was saying. And I mean, let's face it, given my lifestyle, the chances of me aging like my mom are pretty much zero. Yeah, I'm going to need breathing assistance. (laughs) So do you think that the anxiety about aging, and this is a kind of well-worn trope when people talk about aging, but is an anxiety about dying? Because I think I don't have anxiety about dying, but I do have anxiety about aging. I mean, as you alluded to, I think this is partly where you were going toward the end of your introducing this topic. One of my biggest anxieties is that I will have dementia and not know who I am or who anyone I love is, won't be able to read books anymore, and that scares the living daylights out of me. Mm. But not death. Well, I mean, death is like... It's like not even traveling to an unknown land. It's like an abyss that I don't even know what it is. Mm. Tony Soprano's brother-in-law, Bobby, says in one episode of The Sopranos, I bet you don't even hear it when it comes. (laughs) To me, diminishing either mental or physical capacities is more frightening than a death that comes unheard and unknown, you know, just going to sleep and never waking back up again. That seems to me to be much less to worry about than the drawn out reduction and deprivation of all the things that I do that make my life meaningful or worthwhile to me, whether they be physical activities or mental activities or emotional connections I have with other people. Losing those bit by bit seems way more frightening than just not being here at some point. Well, the reason I'm bringing up this distinction between anxiety about growing older and anxiety about dying is because I think, Jason, on the podcast, you've been critical many times before of the German philosopher Heidegger's notion of being towards death, which seems to kind of collapse the two. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this in our death episode a couple seasons ago. Loss of capacity frightens me more than death, and to some extent, the death of others frightens me more than my own death mm-hmm. or causes more anxiety for me. Mm. I mean, I do agree on some sense that finitude is something we constantly all have to struggle with. And I agree with Haglund's idea that finitude is what gives our lives meaning because if we were infinite, you know, we would never have to choose, do I want to do X or do Y? We could always do X and then do Y later. But because we're finite, choosing X means not choosing Y. You know, I remember when I was much, much younger, when I started getting serious about philosophy and stuff, I gave the guitar I just purchased to my brother because I thought, you can't do both. (laughs) Can't be a rock star and a professor. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm also coming to the realization that I'm probably never getting around to that again. And I'm kind of okay with that because these are the choices that I've made. And so being finite sort of forces us to choose And I agree with that aspect of Heidegger, but I don't see death as this existential horizon. There are way more other things to worry about right now than just my own personal death. Although, Jason, we had a student in our PhD program who actually finished his PhD, I believe, named Tom Krell, who has had an incredibly successful music career. (laughs) And we also had another student who was a violinist in the Lyric Opera of Chicago. So you didn't have to give up your guitar. I did. I was never very good to begin with. (laughs) Well, should have and must have are two different things. Um, But I think you point out one of my problems with Heidegger's notion of being towards death. 
I think we experience finitude in all sorts of ways, and all of those ways give life meaning. And it's not just because I'm going to die that I have to make choices. It's because I can't be everywhere at once that I have to make choices. It's because, you know, I can't know everything that I have to make choices. And so we confront finitude all the time. I'm not sure that death is the most significant part of it, but one of the concerns I have, and I think we probably all are experiencing this already, my limitations are growing larger and larger and larger the older I get. I think I've done my last cartwheel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think what you're pointing out is really true. We do, of course, experience finitude all the time. But as we grow older, our experience of our finitude is dramatically different, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. just the limitations of my body are more limiting than they were 20 years ago. Also, our experience of just being in time. I mean, I've mentioned to my friends before that I feel like as I grow older, my relationship to time has become more and more compressed just in the phenomenology of my own experience. Yeah. Like I frequently think 1994 was 20 years ago. Right. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, it wasn't? <laughs> Which is what makes academia a great career for when you get older. Because in the academic sense, in philosophy, a book that came out in 1994 is still pretty recent. Yeah. It still might even yeah. be trendy. Right. <laughs> God, I hope so. No, I was a baby philosopher in 1994. I wasn't publishing books. But I think also, Lee, the relationship to time is different in another way as well. Namely that I think that I am more patient Mm. and happier to have extended periods of time where nothing is happening. Whereas when I was younger, I would get bored at the drop of a hat. Right. If something weren't going on all the time, then I'm like, what the hell is going on? When we're younger, we tend not to even recognize our own limitations. Yeah. You know, the trope is that children think they're immortal. And I think there's something really positive about that. But there's, for me, something incredibly calming about not feeling like I'm going to be immortal, not having to always be anxious about doing all sorts of things. Well, that brings up another question that I was going to ask you guys, namely, does wisdom come with age? I mean, I think for wisdom to be possible... There needs to be some continuity or similarity in terms of the social conditions. I mean, you think about all these jokes that are made online about the bad advice that baby boomers give about applying for jobs. Like, right. just walk around, give them your resume. And people are like, this is just not how it works anymore. Like, <laughs> there's a certain sense in which wisdom as the accumulation of knowledge from experience For it to be viable and worthwhile, there has to be some continuity in terms of what that experience would be for. And since we're living in this age in which we're constantly changing the technological and with it also the economic dimensions of our existence, I mean, we've gone from seeing the old elderly as people who have a lot of wisdom to impart to people who need help. You know, programming their VCRs and setting well, up listen their listen to you, old man, VCR, talking about VCRs. Yeah, I was going to get on that too. <laughs> well, I mean, that was, for me, that was a foundational moment when I used to go help my parents set up the clocks on their VCRs. Yeah. And now it's only progressed from then. Now I help them set up their social media, etc. Yeah. And I think there's kind of a reversal of who one looks to for 
knowledge. Although there is some context where wisdom still makes sense. I think about someone like my grandfather who knew a lot about fishing and the outdoors because the outdoors hasn't changed. Nah. There aren't fish 2.0 now who are using a whole <laughs> new system. They're still the same fish, maybe less of them, but they're still out there. There you can actually have something like wisdom. If you've seen something enough times outdoors, it still seems true. Whereas so much of our social lives, the rules have changed so much that wisdom has been reversed into an out-of-touch kind of, in my day, sort of sensibility. But don't you feel... No, let me make this personal. When I was younger, as things would change, particularly socially, I would feel anxious that I got to get on whatever the new trend is, or at least I have to be aware of it, and I got to be with it and get all the references and so on. Now that I'm 58 years old, I, I just don't care anymore. Like <laughs> It just it doesn't matter to me, and I don't have that anxiety anymore. Yeah, I think it used to be the case that we looked up to older people on the presumption that with age comes wisdom. And now, because there have been such dramatic changes in such a short amount of time, and this is, I think, speaking to your point, Jason, about there not being a kind of consistency or regularity over the course of just one human lifetime since the boomers, really, that now we see older people as out of touch or uninterested or infirm and needing help. When I look at our geriatric Congress, I do not say, here's a body of wisdom, <laughs> right? I say, <laughs> why are these people elected? They know nothing, Jon Snow. You know, they just are completely out of touch. I wonder if that's a relatively new phenomenon in, I don't know, human history. It seems to me that this partly affirms Jason's point or totally affirms part of Jason's point. Our Congress is having to make laws that require knowledge of algorithms and other technological advances. They do just seem like our grandparents who need tech help. They just seem like a bunch of people with their VCRs blinking 12 all the time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're not indigenous to the digital world. <laughs> no. Although neither are we, technically speaking. Uh... Really? When I started college, you could rent a typewriter in the library for 10 cents an hour. I haven't seen a typewriter in, I think, 15 years. But at the same time, we've been here since the beginning. Yes. And we weren't not participating from the beginning. That's correct. Right. That's correct. But as Rick was saying, I see myself less and less inclined to adopt the newest thing. You know, for me, I drew a line where I'm, okay, I don't need TikTok. I don't need whatever's going to come after that. I've adopted a lot of the different technological changes, but I'm kind of content to just let the rest of them pass me by. Uh, I guess I'm the outlier here because I still do want to know what's new. <laughs> I thought you were going to get all over him about TikTok and why he actually needs to be interested. <laughs> I mean, hey, it's y'all's loss. I mean, TikTok is amazing. Come on, visit. It's an amazing world. Yeah, I feel about TikTok the same way I feel about live TV shows is that if anything really good happens, someone will share it with me. Right. In the same way that I don't need to watch Saturday Night Live or award shows or debates if something really interesting happens, it'll be all over the place the next day. Yeah. Yeah. But you both have Alexa in your home, right? No. Oh, Jason. Oh, God. I don't, I don't even know where the <laughs> light switches are. Same. <laughs> <laughs> 
did you know that Hotel Bar Podcast is more than just a podcast? We are a fully online, cross-brand, synergy platform of content creation. Actually, that's not true. Those words are meaningless. But you can follow us on the app formerly known as Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. There you can find the handles of all the co-hosts as well. You can follow us all or pick your favorite. If by the time you hear this, Elon Musk has burned down the servers to collect the insurance, you can also find us on Facebook or YouTube. Just look for Hotel Bar Sessions. Wherever you find us on social media, you can contact us with ideas, complaints, and questions. You can also email us anytime at hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com or visit our interactive page at hotelbarpodcast.com. No matter how you get in contact with us, we're always glad to hear from you. The other thing you mentioned, Lee, in introducing this topic seemed to be pointing toward issues of the inevitable decline in, let's say, our physical capabilities, if not in our health, on the one hand, and then on the other, or maybe just related to that as a continuation, end-of-life problems, questions, and what we face in the U.S. surrounding those. But let me ask first, are you already experiencing a kind of decline in your physical capacities or at least a limitation? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Why does everything hurt now? Yes, I'm, I'm glad we're getting to the, the creaks and groans part of this discussion. You know, now that I regularly make old man noises when I'm getting out of a chair, I kind of get it. Yeah, I mean, I do want to say that I think it is much worse for women in this country because the medical establishment doesn't really deal with dramatic, you know, for example, perimenopausal, menopausal yeah. conditions that every woman has to go through. It ends up being just years of misery for a lot of women and nobody really cares. Like Nobody even really listens, much less tries to help you get through that. So yeah, that's the age I'm at right now. I'm sort of smack dab in the middle of that. And I think this is horrible, right? Like the, I know in the first section, we were really more talking about the phenomenology of growing older, but the physicality of growing older is tough. Mm. Although I feel like this is the place where, to go back to my analogy of TripAdvisor, I find myself conflicted about two visitors from this far off land of the olds. On the one <laughs> hand, there are the people who seem, and a lot of like my parents' generation do this, they seem to not want to adjust at all to the idea that they can't do the things they used to do. They want to be mm. active to the detriment of their well-being. But it bothers me when people are like, oh, 30, everything hurts. People seem to be jumping into a kind of identification with their reduced capacities that mm. I'm not sure needs to happen. I mean, for me, it's always trying to navigate between those two. I realize I can do less. But I don't want to have that old man gait before I need to have it, you know? Yeah. What you see is people not – I don't want to sound like this is a physical health podcast suddenly. They're not stretching enough. <laughs> and they're not drinking enough water. Uh, guilty. Guilty. But, you know, as I mentioned way back on our Hobbies podcast, years ago when I was in my late 30s, I decided to take up martial arts again. I'd done – 
karate and taekwondo when I was younger. And I picked Aikido because I thought it was the martial art that you could age with, since it has a lot less mm. to do with being able to kick over your head, which I cannot do anymore, <laughs> and more to do with the ability to use timing and your opponent's own force and so on. And I've been really glad since I've started that, that I see people who are in their 70s still doing really amazing physical stuff. Although everyone I talk to, there's always a line like, I don't do those things where you have to drop to your knees quickly anymore. I don't do those things that use your hip the way you used to anymore. Mm -hmm. But they find other things to do within the art. And even as they're doing less, they're still active. So to me, this is a model of you have to recognize the limitations, but I think you constantly have to recognize the real limitations and not the fabricated ones that we sometimes impose on ourselves because we're told that, you know, we're old now. I agree in principle with what you're saying. But to go back to your analogy of hearing about a trip from two different people, I do sometimes feel like there is this narrative out there that says exactly as you were saying, like, look, if you just take care of yourself, if you stretch and drink a lot of water, it's not that terrible to age. And I think, you know, that just overlooks that a lot of the physicality of how we age is genetic, right? Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. you know, I mean, there are people like myself, for example, I have a whole collection of autoimmune diseases, I have lupus, I have juvenile diabetes, I have arthritis, you know, there's only so much stretching and water drinking right. that is going to make my aging less difficult, mm -hmm. it's just not the same for everyone. And I do worry that there's a flattening out of the narrative about how to extend your health span, right? right? So in medical ethics, we make a distinction between lifespan and health span. So lifespan is just, you know, how many years are you going to live? Health span is how many years are you going to live with the kinds of capacities that one would need in order to live a healthy life. And I do think that there's a flattening out of the advice that we give people about how to extend their health spans that just doesn't recognize that it can't be the same for everybody. Yeah, mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. I mean, for me personally, looming over my future is the possibility of Parkinson's disease, which has been in my family. Mm. And maybe that's part of the reason why I push so hard to do the things I can do now, because at some point the rug might just be pulled completely out from underneath me. Right. And I might see a massive reduction of my capabilities very little I can do about it. Stretching helps, but it's not going to do much. <laughs> well, last year I took up yoga for, I don't know, a few months. Former guest of the podcast, Blake Zolfo, is now a yoga instructor. So he was helping me through it. And I really did enjoy doing yoga and the stretching gave me some more possibilities that I didn't have without it. Like, tying my shoes without groaning and like reaching the top shelf of the liquor cabinet <laughs> the important things in life <laughs> but i agree with lee that stretching is not going to solve other potential problems that might be in my future because of genetics on both sides of the family there's a blood pressure issue that seems incredibly genetic and almost all of my siblings are dealing with it and Things like that. I'm not going to stretch my way out or Tai Chi my way out or yoga my <laughs> way out of those. I think there's something about this relation to time that Lee mentioned earlier 
that for me at least makes me feel very comfortable within my limitations. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've done my last cartwheel, but that's fine. Like, why do I need to do another cartwheel? How is that going to help me or the world or anything? Well, I think one thing that seems consistent in what the three of us are saying is that we're all worried about end-of-life condition that feels unlivable, like not Mm. a good life, right? And I mentioned at the top of the episode that the U.S. is older than it's ever been before. Now, that actually surprised me. I guess maybe it's not a shock to either of you, but we see that as lifespan has extended both in the U.S. and other wealthy nations, it does seem clear that health span Mm. has diminished. So yeah, we live longer, but our deaths are worse. And given that our lawmakers are 65 plus, right? Why do you think that this isn't a top priority? Why aren't we talking more about legislating end-of-life issues? To me, this points out that discussions of death really freak people out in ways that none of us seem to be freaked out about it. The way we've organized caring for one another in terms of health and life is live as long as possible, Mm -hmm. period. Mm -hmm. We don't really seem willing or maybe even able to talk about living well. Mm -hmm. Is there a moment in which if I can no longer live well, then I'm not living? In a way, this is something that the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben gets at with a distinction he makes between living well and bare life or mere life, a kind of reducing life to biology versus what it means to actually live a life. I think we are terrified of talking about the fact that it's probably okay to die. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. You know, I've been smoking since I was 16 years old, and I continue to smoke cigarettes. As you might imagine, every doctor I've ever had is like, oh, you should quit smoking. (laughs) And the doctor I had just before my current doctor, he said to me, you know that smoking isn't healthy, right? You know, I'm not the first person to tell you this. But if you tell me, look, everyone's got to die of something and this is something I'm okay with, okay, then we'll go on from there. And that was the first time that I ever had a doctor talk with me about what it might mean for me to live well versus what it means to just be alive. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the reasons we're reluctant, especially in this country, to have this conversation about the distinction between living well and just staying alive, or there are two reasons. One is that for at least previous generations, I think this is fading, retirement was the carrot dangling in front of us through our work lives. The idea that if you work, you get this period of your life where you fish and do whatever you want. (laughs) And I think people are reluctant to learn that it's not quite what it's promised to be because you don't know how long you're going to live and you might not be able to do all those things you've been putting off. You know, arthritis makes it hard to learn the guitar. (laughs) But the second thing, and maybe the more important one, is I think people are reluctant to get this conversation about living versus living well because people are aware that if that distinction was going to be made, they wouldn't be the ones to make it. It would be made by insurance companies, Mm. right? That to some extent, the powerlessness people have over their lives would continue into the powerlessness over the end of their life. And Uh I think the fact that we don't have control over our medical conditions, even when we're living and we're healthy, means that we're not willing to engage with those issues when we're older. 
in the best of all possible worlds, it'd be great if we all could make our own individual decision and say, look, this is what I want to do. And if I can't do this in my life, this is not my life anymore. But we're not really able to do that. I could not possibly agree more with you, Jason. You know, there's this whole discourse out there. It's called right to die. It's sort of the flip side of right to life, Mm -hmm. that we ought to have individual decisions about how we die and when we die. And it's shocking to me that not only do we not have that right, but it's actually illegal. I mean, it's actually illegal to choose the time and manner of your own death. So I don't know if you guys watched the Netflix series Frankie and Grace or Grace and Frankie. I can't remember which one it was, but it had um, Jane Fonda. Yeah, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin in it. They're, you know, in their 70s. And there is an episode in that series where one of their friends who had breast cancer, I believe, had gone through treatment, gone through chemotherapy. The cancer was still progressing. And she decided not only did she want to cease treatment, but that she wanted to choose the time of her own death. So she throws this big party, invites all of her friends. Everybody knows that at the end of the night, one of them is going to give her this pudding that has been medicated, well, poisoned. It's a pharmacon pudding, right? (laughs) But after she eats it, she's going to go to bed and she's going to die. So she has this going away party for herself. The conflict that comes up in this episode is... Who's going to give her the pudding? Who's going to take on that responsibility? And I remember several years ago having a conversation with several of my friends in which I said, look, we need to be pudding friends. Like, I need to know (laughs) if it comes to this that you would give me the pudding. My dad used to say, there's going to come a point where I just want you to take me out behind the barn, right? We all know what that means. (laughs) But the pudding friend thing, it's a backdoor way of asserting a right to die. It's sad. It's truly sad. It's tragic. That we don't have this conversation at a national level. By the way, would you guys be my pudding friends? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I would be. It also reminds me of an episode of, I think it's an Apple Plus series, The Last of Us, Mm. where there's a couple, I forget, Bill and Frank, I think their names are. Uh One of them, he can no longer walk and he's having a harder time moving around and getting older. And this is in a post-apocalyptic situation. So he tells his partner, Bill, you know, I'm going to die and they have a nice dinner and so on. And they mix the poison into the glass of wine and they start talking about how it's going to be hard for you to go on. And Bill is like, yeah, but I'm not going on. And his partner is like, oh, you poisoned all the wine, didn't you? Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah. And after dinner, they laid down and died together. Bill says, being alive is nothing to me if I can't live with you. He takes that decision on his own. In a capitalist context in which we turn almost anything into private property, the one thing that can't be my own private property is my own death. Yeah. And so in a way, Heidegger is wrong when he says that death is my own most. At least in the United States, we have made it somebody else's. My death is somebody else's. Take that, Heidegger. (laughs) (laughs) Put that in your Bavarian pipe and smoke it. the hotel bar, Rick, Jason, and I like to pour philosophy straight into your ears. We're an independent and ad-free podcast, and we'd like to keep it that way. But the only way we can do that is with listener support. 
You can help us defray some of our production costs by signing up to support us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash hotel bar sessions. There are several levels of monthly donations there that you can sign up for, and every one of them helps us keep raising our glasses to deep conversations. If you'd prefer to make a one-time donation or several one-time donations, just visit our website at hotelbarpodcast.com where you can find links to support the podcast through Venmo, PayPal, or Cash App, and you can keep enjoying our tipsy philosophy and sobering insights. Well, we've talked about the lived experience, the phenomenology of growing older, and we've talked about the physicality of growing older, but I want to talk about the psychology of growing older. I have often said that the film Still Alice from 2014 was the most terrifying non-horror horror film I've ever seen. It basically recounts the true story of Alice Howland, cognitive psychology professor at Harvard, who had this very rare form of early onset Alzheimer's disease. And in the story, we see her at some point put a note, really a quiz in her phone that she answers every day with some questions like, what year is it? Who's the president? What are your children's birthdays? Et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is that she designed this quiz so that if she got to the point where she couldn't answer these questions, There were some instructions at the bottom that said, go to your dresser, you know, in the top drawer, in the back of the drawer, there's a bottle of pills, take them all. So she had designed this so that if she started to lose her cognitive capacities, she would be able to bring about her own death. The sort of tragic part of this is that at some point she loses her phone. It's only for about a couple of weeks that she loses it. But by the time she finds it again, She's already forgotten that that quiz is in there and she's supposed to take it every day. Mm. It's just heartbreakingly tragic. And her story is, I'll be honest, my literal worst nightmare. And I'm sure this is true of you. And maybe this has something to do with our professions. But the idea that I would lose my mind before I lose my life Mm -hmm. is terrifying to me. I feel like I may have mentioned this on the podcast, but I got a Fulbright, and so I lived in Poland for a year while it ended up being for two years, and I carried my passport with me everywhere. When friends of mine found out that every single day, every time I'm out of my apartment, I'm carrying my passport, they're like, you don't need to carry your passport. And I told them I did because my fear was that I would go insane and that no one would know who I was or where I belong and that I would end up spending the rest of my life in a just recently non-Soviet mental institution on the border between Poland and Belarus. And so I'm with you that for me, losing my cognitive faculties is part of an inevitable, at least to a small extent, inevitable effect of aging, but that kind of dementia and so on really is, for me, terrifying. I think more so than losing my physical limitations in a strange way. Definitely. And maybe that's because of our profession that, you know, as long as I can think, mm-hmm. I'm good. But once I can't think, then what the hell am I? If you're not a thing that thinks, what are you? 
Renee. <laughs> How am I going to know what wax smells like? <laughs> it smells like bees. Um, I mean, this part does seem fairly Cartesian, but in a way, doesn't aging show we are all secretly Cartesian deep down mm. that we want to think there's an us that's not our body? Yeah. Part of aging is you begin to recognize, maybe anti-Cartesian, that your brain is just another organ as well. And what frightens me as much as like the full-on dementia is just loss of ability to focus and concentrate, the idea that I might read something and not remember hours later, like not Mm -hmm. the kind of stuff that gets one sent to a Polish sanatorium, (laughs) but the kind of stuff that would deprive the real enjoyment of intellectual activity. You know, I do, surprise, surprise, hold to the Spinozist idea that there's joy in your capacities. Being able to do something creates a kind of joy, and being able to think about something is a kind of joy in the same way that being able to physically do something like go out on a hike or something is also a kind of joy and there are plenty of joys that I've given up you know I turned 50 the first year of COVID Hmm. and there was a moment Hmm. where it felt like I was like yeah I'm not really going out to clubs anymore anyways no big (laughs) loss there (laughs) and started to think about different pleasures and different joys put a bird feeder in my yard. I was like, oh my God, I really am old now. I put a bird feeder in my yard. You bought some suspenders. I did, but my, you, you can't find the pants. I like the kind of pants that have the hooks on them. I don't like those like alligator clip suspenders. I want the old school ones with like the eyelets and the... Anyways, I realized that was a joke. It's not that difficult to sew a few buttons on your pants so that you could button on your suspenders. That's true. That is true. And sewing, by the way, is a particularly good activity for the decrepit, aging us. true. But you were saying. (laughs) But I was saying. Sorry, lost that with a suspender. (laughs) Uh, I guess what I was saying is I can imagine a reduction of physical things I can do that would still be joyful. But it's hard for me to imagine a reduction of my mental capacities that would still be joyful. Like, I can't imagine that I would be reduced to the status of trying to connect the dots of a picture of a hippo and think that's fun. Right. 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 (laughs) You know, I had a student a couple of semesters ago who worked in a inpatient facility for people suffering from late stage dementia and Alzheimer's. And I don't know if this is true or not. Please, listeners, feel free to correct me if this is not true. But she said that on the whole, Alzheimer's patients go in one of two directions. Either they become very childlike and sweet or they become angry and mean. Mm -hmm. And I can see why both of those would happen. I mean, on the one hand, if you are losing your cognitive capacities, maybe the world just does seem like a wonder all of a sudden again. And you're like, wow, everything's fun. Everyone's so nice and things are so new. But on the other hand, and this is why I anticipate that I would become the mean one, (laughs) is that I can imagine that as confusion and disorientation began to set in in my life, that I would feel very paranoid 
you know, suspicious. And so I can understand how people would become angry and mean. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's also an embarrassment that comes along with it that, you know, you can't remember the word for table or whatever. I think the technical word is, and psychologists out there correct me if it's not, but you end up confabulating, right? You tell a story Mm. about why it is you forgot that thing or whatever. So you try to make it someone else's fault. And if you keep going down that path, then you just start getting belligerent and angry because the world is not a place to which you are adapted. And that's got to be incredibly frustrating. And I could also imagine getting angry. It is the case that it's very difficult to attend to our mental acuity Mm. as we grow older. It's certainly much harder to do that than it is to attend to our physical well-being. Yeah. Although I think in both cases, the problem with aging is that the effects of it come about very slowly. Right. It's kind of like the analogy of the frogs in boiling water, that the water is being brought to a boil slowly and that you don't recognize. It's getting warm in here. Exactly. (laughs) Until you can't remember your loved one's names or faces. Right. I want to just point out that there is a connection between this and wax, maybe not the smell of it, (laughs) but Hobbes talks about cognitive capacities in terms of wax. When we're younger, it's too liquid and therefore things don't make an impression on us. Mm -hmm. And then in, let's say, adulthood, it's just the right consistency where it's pliable, but it can retain things. But then as we age, it gets too hard and it can no longer retain things. And that's why we lose our cognitive abilities. I bet he knew what wax smelled like. (laughs) (laughs) So to talk about a slightly less tragic psychological state, I want to talk about the kids these days phenomenon. Mm. I find myself now saying kids these days, like to my own chagrin. Has it always been the case that older generations, I don't want to say resent, but gruffly, you know, wag their fingers at younger generations? Well, I wonder if this is a phenomenon that is entirely separate from what is called recency bias. In other words, we tend to think that certain things are new when in fact they're quite old. Mm. For example, the singular use of they goes back to the 17th century, (laughs) ending sentences with a preposition and other grammatical errors are not recent. And I'm wondering if blaming it on the younger generation, is it separable from just this mistake that all the bad things are recent? Yeah. I was talking with my mom and her husband recently. You know, Trump has been on about the crime in blue cities and Chicago has been one of his big ones. And I mean, don't get me wrong. We do have a lot of shootings that we ought not to have, but we also have a lot of guns that we ought not to have and a lot of economic problems that we ought not to have. But in fact, crime, including shootings, is not as high as it was in the 90s. And yet, Somehow, for my mom and her husband and for other people their age, they think it's because something has happened to this generation that Mm -hmm. they don't have respect anymore. Mm -hmm. Someone came up to me on the L platform recently and was talking about how I was wearing a suit. This is what gave him the opening to talk with me. And he said, you know, kids these days, they don't respect us anymore. They don't even dress up when they come out in public. When I was their age, if you were going downtown, you put on a jacket and tie. Suspenders. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, that goes without saying. <laughs> and so there, I think he was blaming the youth for a lack of values. I find that's where we most often talk about the kids these days. They don't know values like we did. Mm. That's interesting because, and again, this might just be because of the professional environment that the three of us are in, but I feel like I hear kids these days most often not in relation to their values, but in relation to their skills or lack thereof. And it's frustrating to me often because our colleagues will say they don't have the attention span that they need. They don't do the reading, right? Like they can't pay attention to a lecture for 50 minutes or something like that. As if what they're pointing out is a skillless generation. Right. All the while ignoring all the skills that they do have, right? right, That we don't. Well, this is related to my argument about values, namely that perhaps this generation values certain skills more than others. I suspect, Lee, that you, like me, are constantly arguing with our colleagues about how the things that we think are values are way more recent than we thought they were. They're going to pass away because they had an origin, and all things that have a beginning have an end. And as journalism professionals, Professor Jeff Jarvis talks about the Gutenberg parentheses might be over. Mm. You know, in the whole grand scheme of human history, it's a small blip on the radar, this literacy and the reading and the emphasis on it. Right. That also is related to values. I mean, we're in a very unique position as academics on this generational situation because we are, unlike some people of our age, constantly exposed to people in their early 20s in a way that others Mm. are not. We're also, going back to our earlier conversation about wisdom, we're an institution that's still, in some sense, structured around a certain idea of wisdom, right? The idea of if you've been around and studied these things for longer, you have more to say than someone who's studying these things for the first time. So I think it is interesting to think about that aspect. For me, it's less a sense of a loss of values and a loss of their skills. I almost feel a strange kind of pity because just how thoroughly commodified everything is at this point, Mm. the replacement of adolescence as defined by certain physical spaces like malls and other places where you just go and goof around with like virtual spaces to me, seems like a real loss of what makes life interesting. I don't want to be too nostalgic. And to me, nostalgia is just recognizing the gaps in the commodification of existence. And they're probably finding new physical spaces that I don't even know anything about because I'm not on TikTok. (laughs) But I think more of a loss of different capacities and possibilities when I think of new generations rather than a loss of skills or values. Mm. But Lee, can I ask you a question? Because I think I would push back against Jason based on what you were saying before. Don't you think the recognition that there has been a loss is already a lack of recognition of the gains that there have been? For me to say, oh, the kids these days, everything is so commodified and the other things you were pointing out, Jason, is true, but perhaps there are other things that have been gained that we didn't have. And so if we don't recognize the gains, then we say, oh, the poor kids these days, they're suffering because of this. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think that I 
gained some positive features of my character by playing in playgrounds that would either slit your leg open or give you tetanus. <laughs> I think I gained some positive features of my character by basically being a feral child. Mm -hmm. I think there are positive things to my character that came with sitting in a closed car while two adults are smoking cigarettes and none of us are wearing seatbelts. I have real questions about your character now, but go ahead. <laughs> You know, resilience and do-it-yourselfness, all those kinds of things. Mm. But on the other hand, I don't wish children to be put in station wagons filled with cigarette smoke or <laughs> sliding down metal slides and getting burned and cut and tetanus. <laughs> I think one of the things we have to recognize is that losses and gains are not value-neutral terms. Right? Mm -hmm. right. I mean, we could certainly recognize that things have changed in a value-neutral way and say, yeah, their experiences are different than my experiences. But it is the case, I believe, that when we say this was a loss or this was a gain, that we're making a value judgment about those changes. And, you know, I think sometimes those judgments are justified and more times they're not. One interesting thing in this direction that came up for me just this morning, I am the faculty advisor for a group on campus. Their official name is something like College Students for Social Revolution. They have a weekly Marxist reading group and, you know, things like that. But when I talk with them, they are much more interested in revolution than they are in thinking through Marxist theory or critical theory, thinking about the metaphysics behind various social formations and so on, I would say that's a loss because your stupid revolution is going to go nowhere without this knowledge. But on the other hand, I have to think maybe their retort to me is like, listen, old man, you did nothing for 58 years. So step off and let us take a turn. Okay, X. Er. I mean, I'm getting old. I'm not a kid anymore. I know I'm getting old. In Vegas, I played a slot machine. Three prunes came up. My last birthday cake. I couldn't blow out the candles. The heat drove me back. Well, I know I'm getting old. If I squeeze into a parking place, I'm sexually satisfied. You I'm not a kid anymore. I'm getting old. Yeah. Well, my last birthday cake looked like a prairie fire. <laughs> Strangely, our bartender said that she aged 10 years just listening to this conversation. <laughs> Kids these days. <laughs> and wants us to get the hell out of the bar. But before we do, let me ask, we could just go around. What do you think is the quality you have that is most an old person quality? Mm. Jason, I'll start with you. Besides suspender? <laughs> well, sartorially, I have a strange situation because I dress like an old man in my 20s. Mm. So it put me in this weird situation where I was like, am I going to do a Benjamin Button sort of thing and start dressing hipper as I get older? Or should I just keep going with it? I guess I keep going with it. So I've been wearing cardigans for like 30 plus years now. <laughs> so you've always been an old man sartorially. Yes. <laughs> Lee, what about you? I think that as I've grown older, I've become much more domestic. I think that's probably mm. how I would describe my most prominent old lady characteristic. Much more interested in cooking and having knickknacks in my mm -hmm. house arranged in a proper fashion and <laughs> cleaning things and prepping. 
not prepping, pre- you know, not prepping, but, you know, like <laughs> preparing. I mean, I don't know. That's pretty old lady, don't you think? Yeah, I, I think so. Lots of doilies yeah. and stuff. I have no doilies. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. <laughs> My most old man quality is I have almost no patience for the stupidity of adults. Mm. Unfortunately, this means a couple of my colleagues and more in other departments in the university. Not only do I not have patience, but I seem to lack the ability to hold my tongue. And so I become like a grumpy old man in those contexts. Yeah, I wish I'd have thought of that one first. I think I share that with you. You know, there was this skit on Saturday Night Live with this character, Sally O'Malley, mm. who, if you don't know her, definitely look this up on YouTube. She comes in in this bright red jumpsuit and she says, my name is Sally O'Malley. I can kick and I can stretch and I'm 50. And having just recently turned 50, I really took on the Sally O'Malley <laughs> attitude towards the world. And I think part of what you just described there, Rick, is something that I have very recently adopted. Like, what are they going to do to me? I'm a grown ass woman. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm 50 years old. So, you know, get out of my way. Yeah, that's better than the Saturday Live character, the grumpy old man who would say <laughs> things like, when we were kids, when we got a Christmas present, it either exploded or you were kidnapped and we liked it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right, you guys, with that, let's roll out of here before any of us get any older, and I will catch you guys next week. Bye. Later. Later.